Uh, I'm not the one who normally preaches, Colin is, and uh, he's graciously invited me to share a message with you today. And I know some of you are going, wait a minute, this happened last week, what's going on? Don't worry, he'll be back next Sunday. Uh, And we're glad that he will be, because he's an incredible, incredible communicator of the gospel. Uh, And we're thankful for them. But he's invited me to, to share a lesson with you. We're in this series where we're sort of looking at who God calls us to be and what kind of a community of faith he's called us to be as we follow Jesus. And last week we looked at uh, the fact that everybody's welcome in this community. Everyone, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, anything else, you're welcome here. And today we want to look at another uh, aspect of who we are as followers of Christ that uh, may be a little more difficult than that one. Because it's a little more personal, honestly. Uh, We're going to talk about the fact that nobody's perfect as a follower of Jesus Christ. None of us. Uh, A minister was walking down the street one day. He saw a group of guys over there. And they had a dog in the center of the circle. And he thought, man, I hope they're not up to some mischief and going to harm that, that animal. So he went over there and said, hey, boy, what are you boys doing? And they said, oh, mister, this is just an old stray. And we're, we're just, we all want to take him home with us, have him as our dog, but only one of us can. So we're having a contest to see who gets to by who can tell the biggest lie. And the minister was just, just horrified at this. He said, I can't believe you boys would do something like that. And he launches into a 10-minute sermonette about the evils of lying. And he finishes up by saying, when I was your age, I would never lie. And there's just dead silence for almost a full minute. And he's thinking, I think I got through to these guys. And finally, one of them kind of kicks the dirt and says, okay, I guess you win. Give him the dog. (laughs) Now, they, I'm not saying a minister would ever lie, but they knew enough about human nature to know that sometimes we don't see things the way they really are. You know, uh, sometimes I'm in a situation and I'm, I'm around all kinds of people that are much better at something, whatever it is we're doing, than I am. And it's kind of an awkward feeling. I remember the first time I ever went skiing. It was after Christmas. Cindy's dad took us skiing for Christmas. And the day after Christmas, we left. We drove up to, into the mountains in Colorado. And the next day, we bright and early, we went out to the, the ski area, rented some equipment, got some uh, passes, uh, lift tickets, and then we, we took a lesson because we'd, none of us had been skiing before. And they spent the better part of an hour out on this very shallow slope teaching us how to put our skis on and how to get up if we fell over and what to do if one of them kicked off and how to reset the brake. And, and then mainly they told us how to point our skis kind of toward each other at the tip to make a, a V or a wedge so that we could snowplow and we could control our speed and, and stop if we, got, if we needed to. And we, we spent the better part of the afternoon grabbing a hold of the pommel lift and going up this little tiny slope and coming back down at a, at a pace that almost out, would outrun a turtle. And, and we'd get down there, and then we'd do that over again. And by the, it wasn't long before the place was going to close down. And I was tired of that. I wanted, I wanted to at least go down one real ski run before the day was over. 
So I got up my courage. I didn't want to get on the chair lift. I was afraid of that one. But I got on a little T-bar lift, and it took me up to where you, you get off. And I got off, and there were two signs. One was a, a green circle, and one was a blue square. And I like blue, so I thought, I'll go down this one, okay? Yeah. And I, I started down, and I didn't want to just snowplow all the way down, so I kind of put my skis a little bit, little bit closer to parallel and started going down this slope that was very gentle at first. And I started going a little faster and a little faster, and I thought, boy, this is really fun. And then it got a little steeper, and I started going faster still. And I thought, I better slow down a little bit. But by that time, I was going so fast, I could hardly put my skis in a V. And I just started flying down the side of that mountain, passing everybody until I crashed and burned into the slope. And I mean, I must have gone head over heels for 150 yards, it felt like. And when I finally came to a stop, I looked back up, and there was my hat over there, and my sunglasses way up there, and and there was a pole over here and another one down there, and there was one ski not too far from me, and one had gotten kind of on its side and just skidded on down the mountain. And it must have taken me, it seemed like it took me two hours. It probably took me 30 or 40 minutes to gather all of that stuff up. Before I got through, ski patrol came down and graciously helped me and then very politely encouraged me to ski within my limits from then on. (laughs) You know, when we're not very good at something, most of the time we know we're not very good at it, right? I mean, I've I've taken a couple of Spanish classes, but there is no way I'm going to apply to the UN for a job as an interpreter. Cindy has taught me how to cook spaghetti if I get in a bind and need to fix something for dinner. And, and it's cool. I can actually boil those noodles until they get soft. That's really cool, you know. But there's no way I'm going to apply for a job at a five-star ref- restaurant as a chef. I mean, I know better. Now, what would you think if the day after I had crashed and burned going down that ski slope, I went the next morning, I went to the bottom of the Black Diamond slope and started offering lessons for people? be crazy, right? We just don't do stuff like that because we know when we're not very good at something. But there's one area of life where we don't seem to recognize that very well. We can be not very good at all, but we don't realize it. And that's in the area of our moral character or our spiritual nature. We can be not very good at all, but we don't recognize it. It's just, it's just the way that we see things. Well, Jesus had something to say about that. We're going to look at that in a minute. But first, I want to to let you know, you've heard a lot of stuff recently about how uncivil things are getting in our society, right? U.S. News and World Report did a survey of Americans about this. And they came up with these results. They said the percentage of Americans who think incivility is a serious problem, 89%. The percentage who think mean-spirited political campaigns are to blame, 73%. Percentage who think rock or rap music is to blame, 67%. Who think talk radio is to blame, 52%. And then the percentage who think that their own behavior is uncivil, 1%. You see, we recognize when there's a problem, but somebody else has it. It's out there somewhere. It's not my problem. We have a wonderful way of telling ourselves we're okay, 
even if we're not. A guy that worked for Google as a data analyst, a guy by the name of Seth Stevens Davidowitz, wrote a book that came out last year. It's called Everybody Lies. And the, the focus of the book was about how people do things or what they, what they do and what they say they do or what they will admit to doing in a survey. In an interview when the book was released, he described it this way. People can say one thing and do something totally different. For example, there have been historically been more searches for porn than for weather. But just 25% of men and 8% of women will admit to survey researchers that they watch porn. He went on to say, you see the darkness that is often hidden from polite society when you, when you start looking at these, this data. He said, I think people put on a front, whether it's to friends or on social media, of having things together and being sure of themselves and confident and polished. But we're all anxious. I now assume that people are going through some sort of struggle, even if you wouldn't know it from their Facebook posts. Now, really, that's not a new phenomenon. Maybe our ability to analyze it with Google and other things is new. But years ago, a guy by the name of Scott Peck wrote a book about the same phenomenon. He called it People of the Lie. Here's one excerpt from what he said. He said, utterly dedicated to preserving their self-image of perfection, they are unceasingly engaged in the effort to maintain the appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. They are acutely sensitive to social norms and what others might think of them. They dress well, go to work on time, pay their taxes, and outwardly seem to live lives that are above reproach. The words image, appearance, and outwardly are crucial to understanding the morality of this evil. <clears throat> While they lack, or they seem to lack any motivation to be good... They intensely desire to appear good. Their goodness is all on a level of pretense. It is, in effect, a lie. That's why they're actually people of the lie. Actually, the lie is designed not so much to deceive others as to deceive themselves. They cannot or will not tolerate self-reproach. This is not just talking about those people, you know, the them and the us and them we talked about last Sunday. Every single one of us has this tendency to see ourselves the way we want to be more than the way that we really are. We put our best face forward, not just to impress others, but to make ourselves feel better. And everyone struggles with this. This is a chronic human condition, especially for religious people, because after all, we're trying to follow Jesus. We're working to obey God's command, so we must be better than those people, right? Well, Jesus talked about this once. Actually, he talked about it multiple times, but we're going to look at one time when he talked about it. If you want to get your, uh, your Bible apps out or your book, if you've got that there to follow along, we're going to be in Luke 18 this morning. Luke 18, we're going to start with verse 9, where Luke, the writer, sets the scene for this conversation. He says, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, from that, we know there are a couple of things about the audience. First of all, they think they're doing great. They think they're really doing good. Jesus doesn't exactly see it that way. 
Okay, and he's going to demonstrate that. He's going to try to explain that to them. But they think they're doing wonderful. Now, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus says in his story. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And everybody listening knows immediately who the good guy is and who the bad guy is in this story. They just know it because this was a common this was a common thing to, to talk about. Everybody listening knows that the good guy in this story is the Pharisee. He's the one who was working as hard as he could to do what God called him to do. He was the devout guy. He was the, the person with some spiritual depth. He was the religious person. They know he's the good guy. Now, the bad guy is going to be the tax collector. And we talked about that at length last Sunday, about how they would, they would cheat people. They were unscrupulous. They were, they were unloyal to their own country, working for the Roman government. They were just despised by everyone. They knew that that was the bad guy. Now, what's really weird in this story is that a tax collector would have the audacity to go to the temple to pray. I mean, they were not known for their robust prayer life in any form or fashion. But why one of them would go to the temple where everybody looked down on him to pray to God was really, really puzzling. They, that, that didn't really jive with the way things happened. But then Jesus had a habit of telling stories that weren't like what people expected to hear. So verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Some versions say he stood up by himself. Probably both of those are true. But here's what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you can just hear the, the, the detesting dripping off of his words. That prayer is loaded with details that everybody that was listening to Jesus would understand. Okay? First, the Pharisee stood by himself because he didn't want to be contaminated. You see, to be ceremonial clean was a really important for people back then, to be ritually clean. And that meant you didn't come into contact with anyone who was unclean. And that was a, quite a large group of people, Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, females, and especially this tax collector was unclean. So he wanted to be by himself to preserve his purity. <clears throat> Not only that, he says, I fast twice a week. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to fast. They were commanded to fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in the entire year. This guy fasted 104 days a year, 103 days more than he was required to do. He was demonstrating how incredibly pious and spiritual he was. Not only that, <clears throat> well, not only that, when he, in verse 12, he says, and I give a tenth of all I get. Giving a tenth, or what they called tithing, was a big deal in the Old Testament. And it had become rather complex. Rabbis would often argue for long periods of time about what you had to tithe on and what you didn't. Like, I mean, if you bought something from a farmer or if you got something from a farmer, did you have to tithe on it? Because the farmer had already given a tithe for it. So was it, was it tithe exempt because it was pre-tithed? Or, or maybe do you have to tithe on little bitty things like mint or some spice or something like that? And they would argue loud and long about what you did and ha didn't have to do. Well, this guy is a voluntary flat rate tither. He tithes on everything. He doesn't get involved in any of those discussions because he's going to do it all. 
This guy, to the people listening to what he is saying, is a spiritual rock star. He is just awesome in the way they looked at that then. Regardless of whether you think he is a very religious or not, regardless of whether you think he is, you, you think you're religious or not, we all have a tendency to do this, folks. Maybe it's not praying and tithing like this guy was talking about and fasting, but maybe it's something else that you do to try to honor God. Or maybe it's not religious or spiritual at all. Maybe you think because of your particular political ideology, or maybe because of your cultural refinement, you're just a step above other people. But we all have a tendency to do that. Now, that's the Pharisee. Then there's the other guy, the tax collector. We talked about the tax collector last, last week. He's a, he's a misfit. He's a social outcast. He's a, he's a failure to, in most people's eyes. He's a loser and a reject of the good people in society. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He separates himself too, but not because he doesn't want to get contaminated by people. Because he just doesn't feel worthy to be there. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, he knows he's got no business being there. And when he he beats his breast, that's something that was really remarkable because Jewish men typically were way too proud to beat their breast. Women would do that occasionally. It was an expression of deep sorrow or maybe humiliation. No Jewish man would do it. But this guy does. And he doesn't even look up to heaven. Because it's hard to look at somebody when you've done wrong, isn't it? We don't want to look somebody in the eye when, when we feel guilty about something. If you don't believe that, remember the last time you got onto your kids. I promise you, they probably weren't looking you in the eye. I remember conversations I'd have with my dad when I was a kid when I'd done something wrong, and he'd say, look at me when I'm talking to you. I never enjoyed those conversations. I didn't want to look at him. This guy didn't want to look up into heaven. He just looked down and beat his breast. <clears throat> the tax collector stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up into heaven, beat his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Folks, this man... This prayer of his, God have mercy on me, a sinner. People listening to that would probably think, well, okay, that's about right. I don't even know what this guy's doing in the temple praying anyway with the kind of person he is. But at least he's got himself pegged pretty accurately. He's just a sinner. Then comes a twist that nobody sees coming. Jesus says in verse 14, here's the punchline. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This man, the tax collector, the misfit, the moral failure, the social outcast, the person that everybody despised, went home justified rather than the Pharisee, the other guy, the guy who everybody thought had it so together and was such a good person. And then he really puts a punctuation point on it. 
He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And everybody's jaw just hits the floor. You've got to be kidding. Really? Are you serious? The tax collector? They can't believe it. You see, they knew what it took to be a righteous person. Or at least they thought they knew. They thought they knew exactly what it meant to be a good person. And it's not a lot different from what we think about. Let's do real quickly a little, little our own data analysis here. Let's do a righteousness audit on this Pharisee and see how he stacks up. On both of them, actually. See who comes out on top. Who do you think read the Bible more? The Pharisee or the tax collector? Well, obviously the Pharisee did. Who prayed more, the Pharisee or the tax collector? Well, the Pharisee obviously prayed more. Who do you think knew more about the Bible, had better Bible knowledge? Well, that would be the Pharisee. Who do you think was the one who had a better spiritual reputation among God's people, the Pharisee or the tax collector? There's no question it was the Pharisee. Who is the one who went to church, or in this case, synagogue more? Well, the Pharisee. If you were to ask each of those guys, which of the two of you do you think is the more spiritual person, who do you think they would say? Well, I guarantee you, both of them would say, well, the Pharisee obviously is. But there's one more category. Who is it that was overwhelmed with his awareness of his need for God and God's forgiveness? That would be the tax collector. Oh God, oh God, I need you. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus describes this awareness of and public confession of that need, humility. No pretending, no hiding, no trying to be something that you're not. Just being real. We call it getting real today, keeping it real. Don't pretend you're something you're not. Of course, most of us will agree in principle that's a really good thing. It's especially good when you do it. But when we get practical about it, when we take it out of the theoretical realm and get practical and we say, oh, I need to do that, it's not nearly as appealing, not nearly as attractive to us, is it? Just get real. You see, one of the reasons we don't want to do that is because we know If I get really honest with you, if I tell you who I really am, there's a real good chance that you might reject me. You might not want me around anymore. And I'd be left all alone. Partly because we're afraid that people respond that way. And partly because we just don't want to go through suffering the embarrassment that being honest about some of the junk in our lives would bring. We keep the mask on. We do really well at putting up a facade. What we don't understand so often is how harmful that can be. We have a, a saying in Celebrate Recovery, you're only sick as your secrets. And that's not just a slogan. That's empirically proven. There was an article in Psychology Today, March the 7th of 2017, that highlights some of the dangers of harboring painful secrets. It's damaging 
not only emotionally and mentally, it's damaging uh, physically as well. Here's a couple of excerpts from that article. It says, a wealth of studies from the 1980s today have led to the general conclusion that secret keepers are more likely to suffer from headaches, nausea, and back pain than others, for instance, and more cases of hypertension, flu, and cancer occur among those hiding trauma. Other research has uncovered more harmful effects. Dale Larson of Santa Clara University did a meta-analysis and found that secret people, secretive people are more depressed, shame-prone, anxious, and sensitive to judgment, which makes them both tight-lipped and vulnerable to illness. Denial, rationalizing, and minimizing fears, pain, and addictions is common among those who keep secrets. Clinical psychologist Nando Pelusi writes, Self-deception is not just artful distraction from solving the problem. By not dealing with it, I can sweep it under the rug. That becomes a temporary way to feel better. But it's not lasting. It is literally true that our secrets can make us sick. Or in the words of rapper Jay-Z, you can't heal what you don't reveal. The opposite of that is also true. When we reveal what is going on, God has an ability to always provide healing. When Jesus came, he came to start a new kind of community different than anybody had ever seen before. It was not just a place where everyone was welcome. It was also a place where no one was perfect. The first rule for Jesus is you got to keep it real. You got to get real. You got to be honest about what's going on in your life. Here, what that means is nobody can come pretending. It means you don't come saying, yeah, I've got it all together. I've got it all down. It's all good. I got, I'm, I'm good. In this community, we need to be honest. And I think that's part of the reason the tax collector went to the temple when he did to pray. Because when people get real, when they go in front of God and other people and just be honest about needing mercy from God, there's something really healing about that. Healing comes when you're known. This isn't just some ploy by religious people to get you to air your dirty laundry. But we live in a world where we're taught to hide our flaws. And we do that so naturally that sometimes we don't even know it. We don't even recognize it. In the world today, if you want people to welcome you, to think you're really special, then you have to convince people that you're as as rich as Bill Gates and as strong as Arnold Schwarzenegger and as smart as Albert Einstein and as sexy as Blake Shelton or whatever, whoever's the latest. But Jesus came to create a different kind of community. Jesus came. Have you ever noticed when you're reading through the New Testament, he didn't spend a lot of time with the the big wheels and the people in power, political power, social power, religious power. That wasn't who he invited to be his followers. It was a whole different set of folks. Because Jesus said, you know, you can come to me. And you can be as strong as Bill Gates and as smart as Arnold Schwarzenegger and as sexy as Albert Einstein and not resemble Blake Shelton in any way. 
and I want you to follow me. It was a whole different way to see people, a whole different way to do community. And that's a tough sell in Collin County, Texas. Because after all, we're the place where we make all the 10 best lists, right? Everybody thinks it's just great. The best neighborhoods, the best schools, the best jobs, the best cars, the best homes, the best you name it. It's got to be the best. And sometimes if we're not careful, that can influence how we look at the church. And we can think that the church here needs to be a successful church for successful people. And we have to have the best preaching, and we have to have the best worship, and we have to have the best children's ministry, and student ministry, and mission programs, and the best of everything. Folks, I am so incredibly thankful for the wonderful stuff we have. We've got the best preacher around. We've got incredible worship. I don't care if you go to instrumental or acapella, it's amazing. We've got wonderful children's ministry, tremendous student ministry. We've got a great missions ministry. I love all that. But if we start thinking that's what makes us right with God, we have gotten sucked right into the trap that the Pharisee was in. Because that's not what it's about. It's about, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, Jesus starts this new community, and the idea is this is a place where nobody's perfect, and everybody's got to be real about that. Because it's only when you're really known that you can be really loved. If there's one thing that we as a church family need to understand, it's that nobody's perfect, and it starts with me. Because when we get that... When we really understand that, it completely changes the way we see one another. You know, sometimes somebody, a a sinner, recognizes that they need Jesus and they come to him. They come in, in contrition and penitence and they confess their faith and they're buried into his death and baptism. And then they're raised up to walk a new life. And we just celebrate that. We rejoice over that. Then we just gush about that. And we should. I hope we never stop doing that. But sometimes someone who has been a follower of Jesus for a while. They stumble and they fall and they fall flat on their face. And sometimes we don't respond the same way to those people when they say, forgive me. Because we have this feeling there ought to be some kind of consequences to be borne out. There needs to be a little punishment assessed here. And no, they're not going to be lost. They're going to be saved in eternity. We just need to make sure they have a, a, a little powerful piece of punishment right now. And that's so completely contrary to what Jesus intends for his community of followers to be. When somebody stumbles and falls, I don't care who they are, I don't care where they are, they don't need another prosecutor. 
They need a defender. They're not a defender of their actions. Those may be indefensible. But they need somebody to defend their worth as a child of God. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. When somebody stumbles, we need to stop preaching grace to the sinner and grit to the saint. Just gut it up and grit it out and make sure you fly right or else. Friday a week ago, Billy Graham was laid to rest. One of the most beloved pastors in the history of this country. Uh, For so many reasons, people loved him and admired him and responded to him. But one of the things that he and his family did that you may not be very aware of is when somebody who was a a leader in the church fell, they would support them and encourage them and accept them. Back in the heyday of the televangelists and all the scandals that were rife then, a guy by the name of Jim Baker, some of you remember him, with PTL, Praise the Lord Ministries. He really fell hard. Wound up spending time in prison, five years in prison for some of the things he did. When he got out, Billy and Ruth Graham told him they wanted uh, to support him. They were there for him. And he was staying right after he was released. He was released on a Friday. He was staying in a, in a Salvation Army place to sleep. And Ruth called the Salvation Army and made arrangements for him to be able to go to church with them on Sunday. He said he, he went and he was sitting with the, the Graham family there in, in that church. And just before the, the first song started, the, the doors opened at the back of the church, and Ruth Graham walked down the center aisle right up to the front and sat down in an empty seat right beside Jim Baker. He said, I'd been out of prison less than 48 hours, and she walked in and sat down beside inmate 074-07-058 because she wanted everybody to know that she was his friend. After the service, they invited him to come home with them and have lunch. And when they were there at their cabin, they call it, nice cabin, when they were there waiting for the meal to be ready, they were talking, he was talking with Ruth, and she asked him for some addresses of some people so that she could write to them. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a wallet, but it wasn't a wallet, it was an envelope. He said, they don't allow you to have a wallet in prison, so you get an envelope and you use that as your wallet. And he was looking through papers in there and didn't think anything about it. And she said, Jim, don't you have a wallet? And he explained to her this, and he said, after five years of that, you kind of get brainwashed into thinking an envelope is a wallet. She said, wait just a minute. And she went into the next room and came back in a couple of minutes with a wallet. She said, this is one of Billy's. He doesn't need it. You can have it. They understood, I think, how to treat people that have fallen because they didn't have a misconception that the church is made up of all these perfect people. This is a place where nobody's perfect. When somebody stands before people in CR back here on Wednesdays, first thing they do is they say, I'm a believer in Jesus. And then they share what their struggle is, what they're struggling with, the sin they're wrestling with. 
And then they say their name and everybody says, hi, says their name. And we celebrate that they're doing that, not because we're celebrating the sin they've gotten sucked into, but we're celebrating that they've done what the tax collector did. They've said, okay, this is, this is my struggle. I recognize this. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And God does. And we need to, too. And, you know, sometimes I just, I just have this deep yearning for that not to just happen back in the back room back here on Wednesday nights. But I think Jesus really intended this room to be a place where we could do something like that. Where we could just get real and be honest and say, this is what I'm struggling with. And not fear rejection, not fear judgment. Just have people support us and encourage us and pray for us. We're going to do something we don't normally do today. We're going to have an invitation. I know we've had an invitation the entire service. We've invited you from the beginning to go down there to the room in the back because there's some of our church leaders and prayer partners back there that are waiting to hear whatever it, ha- whatever it is that you need to pray about. But this is a special invitation. This is not for something, somebody you know or something happened. This is, I want to come and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Because we all are. And sometimes just being honest about that, being willing to have the courage to say, God have mercy, is the first step to healing. So this is a special invitation. We're going to have some of our elders uh, at the sides and around this room, some of our prayer partners right now. And if you want to go, you you may want to share with them what's going on in your life, what you're struggling with. You may want to get into that. That's okay if you want to. If you don't want to do that, just say, I just want you to pray for me. Or maybe you just want to stay right where you are. Maybe you want to kneel down there at your seat. Or maybe you just want to stand there. And just pray and pray what this tax collector did. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But whether you want to go to somebody and pray or pray right there or whatever, we just, my hope is that we'll get real today. And we'll be that kind of community that Jesus came to create. And we'll love one another and help one another. And before we do that, I just, I just want you to add, let's pray together real quick. Oh, Father, oh, God, we look to people and sometimes we look to ourselves like we've got it all together. And we are holy and righteous and all that. When deep in our hearts, God, we know that we're messed up. We know that we're the sinners and the guilt-ridden, the anxious and the fearful. We're the betrayers and the greedy and the resentful. Oh, God, thank you so much for your inexhaustible mercy that forgives. Thank you for Jesus who paid that price. And, Father, we ask you to pour out your mercy on us now as we recognize our own sinfulness. Have mercy on us. 
And God, I also pray that you'll give people courage to pray this prayer, not just today, but every day. And let us receive the incredible healing and the powerful forgiveness that only you can give. For we pray it in Jesus' name and amen.